Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is author Roger Meyer. Roger first started following sports when he was 12. He started collecting baseball and football cards when he was seven, then publications about five years later. He loved researching all, he loves researching all sports. Roger played sports at all, throughout his junior high, high school, and college years, mainly base, baseball, basketball, and track, salt, then later softball, tennis, and now pickleball. He has been uh, accumulating sports books, record books, and yearbooks and encyclopedias his whole life. Today, Roger spends a lot of his time researching player and team stats, often trying to compile game-by-game -game information, mostly from the 1950s. And someday he wishes to create a web page to publicize and sell copies of his research. In 2000, Roger published his book, The First Mr. Basketball, The Legend of Bobby McDermott, a bio of one of the greatest pro basketball players in the 1930s and 1940s. Roger, welcome to the show. It's an honor and a privilege to have you here. I'd like to start off by asking you, what led you to write about Bobby McDermott? Well, Matt, a lot of the information that was out there on professional basketball when I was growing up uh, mainly talked about the NBA, and they made it seem like there was no professional basketball other than when the NBA began in 1946. And I found the National Basketball League was started in the late 30s, and then even the original ABL, which went back into the 1920s. And so at different times, you would see articles uh, in magazines or books, and they'd have stuff about the ABL, and there were a couple of record books that I picked up, and they listed the standings each year and the leading scores. And, you know, McDermott was in there, and he would average 10 points a game and lead the league in scoring, but a lot of times the other players were only averaging, and these would be the, you know, number two through five leading scores. They'd be averaging like five and six points a game. And uh, one of the things that happened is in 1935 and 36, McDermott leads the uh, league in scoring with the Brooklyn Visitations. And then there are other players throughout the next four years that lead the league. There's no mention of McDermott at all. And all of a sudden, in 1939 and 1940, I mean, McDermott leads the ABL in scoring again. And I thought, where did he go for those four years? He's gonna tell me that he was the best player for two times, five years apart. Well, I discovered that he wound up playing for the uh, traveling uh, New York Celtics. And many people had thought that the Celtics um, had disbanded in like 33 or 34, right in the middle of the depression when a lot of sports teams were just finding it difficult to survive. But they continued and they continued to play. And, and that's where McDermott was for those years. And so just trying to find information like that when there's a hole. And that's kind of the biggest thing that I do is when I see information and then there seems to be a gap and something's missing and I can't find out why, that's when the, you know, the interest in doing the research kicks in. So, um, and he was, uh, in 1945, he was uh, voted uh, the greatest player of, you know, the first part of the century but the official voting took place like in 1950, and by then George Mikan had established himself and he was voted uh, the greatest player of the first 50 years. But there was a poll taken in 1945, and McDermott was called the greatest player uh, to that point in, in professional basketball. So, 
Roger, please tell our listeners how vastly different basketball was in the 1930s and 40s. I mean, I mean, I've read accounts. It is hardly the, what you see today. Can you tell us the differences? It, go, take us back in a time machine and describe what it looked like back then, the game of basketball. Well, probably the biggest thing that happened was that back in the early 30s, after every basket, play was stopped and you went to midcourt and you had a jump ball. <laughs> so no, no fast breaks or anything like that. And it, again, looking at records, the centers who were often, you know, um, much bigger than everybody else at 6'5", maybe 6'6", six, six, <laughs> um, but they didn't score. You could, if you found box scores and things like that, they didn't score. But their biggest role was getting the tip. And so you have the other players and ones that did the scoring, but, you know, you can't score if you don't have the ball. And the Senators, yeah, the Senators, the, the Senators played a, a very important role in that aspect. But it just slowed the game down terribly. And finally, in 1937, I think, they did away with that center jump. Um, but up until that point, that's why 25, 30 points a game for a team, that's what was scored. And um, it, it, just was, it just was very slow. Another thing that was uh, also very important until Hank Luisetti came along to Stanford, everybody shot two-handed. Everything was a standstill, two-handed set shot. You know, guys didn't do running one-handers or even hook shots or anything like that. So it was all a two-handed shot, and it was just very different. And then Luisetti pioneered the, you know, the running one-hander, not the jump shot that we know of today, but the running one-hander. And that, you know, everybody saw that, and they said, wow, that's, you know, that's special. I want to learn to do that. So um, so he was a big game-changer when it came to that. But it was just a very um, disciplined, slow, plodding, and – until you had an absolutely wide open shot in many cases, um, you didn't shoot. And even somebody like McDermott, um, you know, they didn't have the three point shot back then, but a lot of times he shot from 30, 40 feet out. And it was a good shot. It wasn't a case of the coach going, <laughs> if that doesn't go in, you're going to sit down. He, you know, he was, he was good at that. So, so mostly he liked to shoot it from long distance. He wasn't one to attack the rim then in, in that no. case. No, he wasn't. Um, later on in years um, going forward when he played with the Pistons and Buddy Jeanette and he were the backcourt for the Pistons, um, McDermott was the shooting guard. Jeanette was the uh, point guard, the playmaker. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's what McDermott was. And when I did the book on McDermott, um, his uh, brother Buddy, who was still alive at the time, was talking about how he learned to shoot as a kid. And he would go into the gym um, a lot of times and just practice by himself. Buddy would rebound for him and he would take shots. And this old gym had an A-frame in there. And so in a lot of parts of the court, the ceiling is very low. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to shoot this high-arching two-handed set shot, it's going to hit the ceiling. So he had to learn in some cases on certain parts of the court, you could shoot it high, but another, you had to shoot it low. And so he just practiced and worked at it and, uh, you know, became very good at it. Where was Bobby McDermott born and raised? Uh, he was born in Long Island. Uh, he grew up in Whitestone. And then later on, his family moved to uh, Flushing. And uh, 
he had five brothers and two sisters. Okay. So, so growing up, I mean, he's got a built-in basketball team. One of his brothers was big on golf, so he wasn't too much into basketball. But the other four were. So a lot of times, uh, and they were fairly close in age. Um, and Bob's older brother, Milt, in fact, initially uh, was thought to be the better player. And uh, but he didn't have the drive and determination that Bobby did. And uh, um, but they had a built-in team, and they just, you know, like all kids growing up, if you've got you know, four brothers like that, you're going to, you're going to play sports and you're going to learn a lot more uh, with them because they're not going to go easy on you. So it's going to be tough growing up. So, um, but he was, yeah, he was born and brought up in Long Island and uh, he was famous for having a uh, New York accent, Dick Tripto, who played later played with him at the Pistons and whom I got to know. He told me that McDermott, a lot of times when he was coaching them on the Chicago Gears, he would say to the players, you know, all right, let's go out. You know, we've got to get our perks. Because <laughs> in Long Island, that's how they say points. They yeah. say perks. Yeah. Now, uh, did he excel solely in basketball, or was he a multi-sport athlete? Um, his brother, uh, Buddy, told me that uh, uh, he was good in, in a lot of sports. Played football and played baseball. and uh, But at a fairly early age, um, he gravitated to basketball. That just... It, you know, when he was, I think, uh, like 12 or something like that, I think he really, he liked, just liked the basketball, liked the physicality of it. He uh, had a serious accident when he was about eight. You know, he tipped over a big bucket of boiling water or something like that. He burned his arm and part of his face. And the doctors had said to him that, you know, you've got to do a lot of physical work. And, uh, you know, if you don't, you're going to lose the use of your arm and, um, and so that's all he needed to hear. And, uh, he very much, you know, put his mind to it and, uh, he recovered from it. And, uh, but basketball was the sport that, uh, you know, he gravitated, gravitated to at an early age. Now, did he ever play college basketball or did he turn pro right after high school? No, he didn't even finish high school. He played, he played one year in high school. And then at the age of 15, uh, he left to uh, join a semi-pro team. And, uh, because he was that good. Um, and I'm going to guess he really didn't, uh, wasn't really a great student and, uh, somehow he was able to do it. And, uh, so, uh, one year high school and then semi-pro, uh, ball with all kinds of, uh, you know, different teams and that, uh, in the New York, Long Island area. You know, Roger, I, 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 I've been working on, I, I was, I've been working on a basketball book project of my own. That's going to come out, you know, um, in the middle of this decade, you know, like three years from now or so. And I was researching McDermott. And one thing I was struck me was when I looked up old newspapers online is that whenever McDermott came into town, it was like an event. It's like, you know, like, Oh, Michael Jordan and the bulls are coming to this town here, you know? And it was like, you know, there was always a big ballyhoo when he would come in to perform. I mean, he really was like the the Jordan of his era. Isn't that accurate? I I think that's really true. And it's only because, uh, and again, I go back to what I said initially about the NBA. The NBA sort of creates this aura that there was no professional basketball before the NBA. That's just the way their attitude is. And a lot of the publications and publicity, you know, support that kind of thing. And the thing is, Bob McDermott never officially played in the BAA or the NBA. Yeah. He only he only played in the ABL and the National Basketball League and then the one year the 
1950-51 National Professional Basketball League, but he never officially played in the NBA. So they, you know, they just didn't do publicity. They didn't publicize that kind of thing. And in the case of, you know, the ABL, that was predominantly in the East. They were Eastern teams, and they played on weekends. You know, they typically didn't play during the week. And then when he gravitated to the Fort Wayne Pistons, um, they are a Midwest league. Yeah. Uh, they were in Fort Wayne and Sheboygan and Oshkosh. Um, so it wasn't until uh, the BAA started in 46-47 that publicity for professional basketball started to take on uh, more recognition around the world than it had prior to that. Pro basketball back in the, in the 40s prior to the BAA was kind of, I mean, it was behind horse racing, behind uh, tennis, behind golf. I mean, if you were to put, if you were to list one to ten as the uh, pro sports that most people were interested in, pro basketball didn't make the list. Heck, it even was more tenuous behind college hoops. People more thought well, college hoops was superior in sure. some views. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was the same with pro football. College football was way bigger than the NFL. So, yeah. yes, you're right. Now, is it true he was a player coach for the Fort Wayne Pistons and later the Chicago All-American Gears in the 1940s? That is correct. Um, it, what's interesting is there was a, a guy at Fort Wayne named Carl Bennett, uh, who in many cases is listed as the coach. But in reality, McDermott was the one who um, set up the game plan, um, you know, ran the practices and stuff like that. I think what Bennett mainly did was try to coordinate the in-game substitutions. Um, but I did meet Carl Bennett once, and I, I talked to him about that, and I said, you know, were you, were you the coach or was McDermott the coach? And he kind of, you know, tiptoed around it, and he, and he said, uh, you yeah, know, well, you know, we, we both sort of did it. And uh, uh, so I think because McDermott's personality was really, you know, kind of forceful and um, – you know, he was the player, and Bennett was, you know, the business manager. Uh, he didn't have any previous experience playing or anything like that. So I think um, while technically Bennett might be listed as the coach, in actuality, McDermott was the guy, and he certainly was the player coach for the Gears. That goes without question. Yeah. Now, let's talk about that, that championship season he had with the Gears in 46-47. I, I was right, 46-47, correct? Correct. Now, that's when he teamed up with George Mycat, who, of course, by himself altered the game enormously as well. The first true giant, you know, in pro right. basketball. What was his relationship like with George Mycat? Because before Mycat come along, McDermott was the big was the big guy and the superstar. Now, all of a sudden, you got Mycat. How did the two interact with one another? I mean, did they mix? Was it a good mix? How did it work out, the dynamics between McDermott and Mycat? Well, they were only together that one year, and uh, in my research, I wasn't aware of anything where, uh, you know, there was a personality clash or anything like that, and everything that I've read, um, you know, they seemed to get along, and again, I mentioned to you that uh, I struck up a relationship with Dick Crypto, who was one of the teammates on the Gears, and I had asked him a couple of questions about you know, what it was like to play for McDermott and having Mike in there. And he, he loved Mike because he played with Mike in college. They both went to DePaul. Yeah. And um, 
Um, and he said that, uh, you know, McDermott it was a character. I guess he, you know, I got to be fairly good friends with it, but he was sort of guarded in what he, uh, how far he'd go in the details because you think the guy was there for that whole year and boy, just go ahead, tell me whatever you want to tell me. I'm all ears. But uh, he was a little bit reluctant, but uh, I, I never got any sense that there was any sort of uh, uh, headbutting or, uh, you know, Madonna type attitudes on the part of either of them, and they, you know, they coexisted well throughout the whole season, and uh, um, they won the. One thing that's interesting about that, though, there was a there was a thing in the NBL that there was an agreement supposedly at the beginning of the year that the team that won the regular season championship was going to be considered the champion, mm -hmm. and that was the Rochester Royals. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the Gears played the Royals in the playoffs, and the Gears beat them. So, but there's a little bit of a dispute, and since it's not the BAA or the NBA, it's kind of hard to, to look and, and get any specifics or so look at record books and stuff like that. But the Gears generally are considered the champions because they did beat them in the playoffs. But uh, there was a little controversy with Rochester claiming they were the league champs because they leave you read that at the end of the year, whoever was in first was considered champions. So. Now, when you were researching this book, did you get any assistance from the McDermott family, uh, the, the children, uh, any survi uh, survivors? Uh, did you get any help from the family? Oh, I absolutely did. Uh, his uh, second son, Billy, was absolutely great. Uh, and he, he loved his father, and he had all kinds of, of stuff to share with me that, you know, that happened. And uh, um, he was a big help, and then he gave me uh buddy's phone number buddy uh was living in wisconsin at the time and so i got a sense of uh mcdermott growing up from talking to buddy so uh so that was really good uh mcdermott's first son uh bob jr uh didn't uh, didn't like him at all you know they uh mcdermott and his wife uh had divorced like in 1947 and the kids were still somewhat young at the time and uh um, so he always blamed his father for that and never forgave him. And, uh, so, uh, I talked to him once. I, I asked him if he'd give me his number and he did. And I, I talked to him for about five minutes, I think. And he just said, Oh, I hate that bum. I don't want to talk about him. And yeah. so that was that. But I also got an opportunity to talk to McDermott's first wife, mm -hmm. um, who was alive at the time. And she gave me an insight into him um and what it was like initially being married and how she he changed when he went to the celtics um because when he he was with the brooklyn visitations and uh, in 34 35 and then 35 36 and then he goes to the celtics and so he's gone he's traveling all the time he's not home and it just put a strain on the life and i guess up until that point he really hadn't even been a drinker they didn't drink at all, and so you figure he's on the road with these guys that are 10 or 12 years older than him, Dutch Dennett, Joe Lapchick, you know, and he's just a kid, and uh, um, so she just said that, you know, he changed a lot, he wasn't the same, and, uh, um, and like I said, they divorced in, in 1947, but I was thrilled to, to be able to talk to, you know, his first wife, his brother, his son, uh, and, and again, uh, there's just there's just not enough documentation of him as a person, as a player, all during those years, except 
I mean, you go to a record book and there's the leading scores. And, um, but what was he like? What uh, the questions that you've been asking, you know, what kind of, what, what kind of shooter was he? Was he a point guard? Was he a shooting guard? Did he play other sports? And talking to the rest of the family, I was able to get that, get that information. So that was, that was a blessing that I did it when I did, because I'm sure Billy could, the son could still be alive, uh, but I'm guessing that uh, his wife and his brother probably are not. Tell me, how did uh, Bobby McDermott, when did Bobby McDermott pass away and what did he die from? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, he died in 1963. He was working for Yonkers Race, Raceway um, as a security guard. And there was a rumor floating around that he was uh, somehow involved uh, with the mafia or taking payments, um, never, never formally I think I talked to Billy about that and never formally uh, um, come out in any sort of a, um, uh, you know, verified document or anything like that. And he was um, in his, and he, I guess he would, at, at times, maybe he, he stayed at the raceway and instead of leaving or going home or something like that, he slept in his car. And anyway, uh, he was found dead in, in his car one morning. And it, they never got to the bottom of it. I never got any documentation that said, um, you know, who who killed him or how he died or anything like that, but just very suspicious. Roger, please tell our listeners, where can they buy this book? Where can they find it or buy it if someone wanted to purchase it? Well, uh, they can contact me just like you did. Um, what I really want to do someday, because I got a whole ton of stuff that I've done, I put together and compiled and I'd love to set up a website uh, so that people can see this kind of stuff that I've done and if they have an interest um, that you know they can buy it but I have to do it and it's uh, you know for people who think it's easy I don't know that it really is so um, I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing a lot of research but I need to just sort of stop at some point and say okay Now's the time I need to do a website. But until I do something like that, um, you know, it was just, you remember I said to you, how'd you find me? How'd you, how did you know that I did the book? Uh, because except for the um, APBA, the Association of Professional Basketball Researchers, run by uh, Robert Bradley out of Arizona, um, you know, you can't, um, you can't find it. You can Google me. And nothing shows up because I Google myself a couple of times and I don't find anything. And that's why I couldn't figure out how you did it. Cause I tried and I said, oh, you know, I couldn't, if I wanted to buy it for myself, I couldn't. So how did you do it? So, yeah. but yeah, the website, the website would be the way to do it. But for the time being, if somebody wanted to contact me, you know, if, if somebody hears this and they contact you, feel free to give them my address and uh, I'll be happy to send them a copy. Let's talk about yourself for a little bit. Uh, where, Roger, where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born in uh, New York City, okay. and I lived there for six years, and then uh, my parents moved to Rhode Island. And so basically, I grew up in Rhode Island. I went to high school there. I went to college there. I met my wife at college. So I consider having grown up in Rhode Island, and I have been living in Massachusetts uh, since 1966. So... Yep. What inspired you to become a writer? Um, well, um, 
it's kind of interesting. I would say that as a, as a kid growing up in school, I was much better in math than I was English. <laughs> but uh, I, because of my interest in finding information and stuff like that, I just became a writer based on the kinds of things I was interested in in all this sports research. And um, so it just started from that. And um, I did get a good degree in English. I had hoped someday to be a sports announcer. But I majored in English and I minored in speech. Um, I, I couldn't major in speech because there weren't enough courses. So I took English and minored in speech. Um, so maybe I learned a lot more about writing in college than I thought I did. Um, but uh, that's the degree I had. Uh, from school, and it just evolved from there, and, um, you know, my interest in the sports research part of things is how I became a writer. Uh, Roger, whenever I interview an author, I always love asking this standard question, because the, 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 the people answer it in so many different ways. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors who you loved to read? And of those favorite authors, did any of them inspire you to become a writer, or perhaps influence your writing style? Well, my answer is probably going to disappoint you. I don't know that I had a favorite author growing up, and I wasn't inspired necessarily by, um, you know, by anybody. But if you've ever read uh, any other books on uh, basketball history, have you read stuff by Charlie Rosen? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. He he just, I mean, I love the way that guy writes, and he. He wrote, he wrote a book on uh, Jack Molinas, The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I got that book, and I just sort of picked and chose and looked at a few things. I didn't intend to read it right away. I was going to read it in a while. I couldn't put that thing down. And he is, so he is somebody that I admire. I mean, anything that he writes, I think, is, is just great. Uh, that's just one guy that comes to mind. And... Um, how about Terry Pluto and his oral histories of like the ABA and the early NBA? Do you like Terry Pluto's stuff? Well, you know, the thing I found about him, the book he did, Loose Balls, um, he jumped all over the place. And maybe this is just because of me and the way I, I look at things very logically. So I start at the beginning and I write a book and I go through chronologically and I come to the end. When I read that book, the thing that annoyed me the most was is he jumped all over the place. Uh, he had he would write about something that took place in the first year of the ABA. He then jumped to the playoffs five years later, and then he'd go back to some guy who started out. Uh, so that particular book, which and I, I love getting stuff on, on the ABA and things like that, but um, that particular thing um, just kind of bothered me. And so... And Bob Ryan, he writes uh, for the Boston Globe, and I've been reading his stuff for many years, and he did a book on Elgin Baylor, and um, he's another guy that, um, different books that he's done, I'm not a Celtics fan, so I don't have a lot of Celtics books, but most of the stuff that he's written, I really enjoy a lot, and I, I like him very much as an author. Roger, if you ever come out with another book, please let me know. I would love to have you on my show again, okay? All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm flattered that I was able to be on tonight. Well, it's an honor and privilege to have you, Roger. And I love talking about old, you know, vintage basketball because that's something people don't really appreciate, you know, the early beginnings of the game. I mean, it was so different back in those days. 
but oh, I mean, very, Bob, very different. yeah, but Bobby McDermott, he was a molder, a founding father of the game, and it's nice to pay tribute to him. Yeah, I agree. Okay, you take care, Roger. Thank you very much, Matt. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing sports author Ian Kahanowitz. And I'd just like to remind my listeners that my book, Lords of the Great Iron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, is up at Amazon. It's still on sale at 30% off and will remain on sale until after Super Bowl 57 is played in mid-February. So go out and get it. Thank you. Thank you and good night.